explaining the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as the three persons of the Holy Trinity is an aim that has led to much debate and controversy for almost as long as there's been a church. Realistically, a library could be stuffed full of books on the topic to serve as proof. This is because no theological study can be more fundamental or foundational than to understand the very nature and character of the eternal three-person God that we serve and worship. In 2010, Fred Sanders published the appropriately titled book, The Deep Things of God, How the Trinity Changes Everything. In it, he wrote, quote, The doctrine of the Trinity expels a host of unworthy ideas of God's love. God is not lonely or bored or selfish. This is what the doctrine of the Trinity helps us learn with greater precision, that God is love. The triune God is a love that is infinitely high above you, eternally preceding you, and welcoming you in. End quote. In other words, the end of our pursuit is not merely knowing more clearly about this triune God. Ultimately, a right knowledge of our triune God should, if it's done properly, invite us to come to God, to experience his love, and to delight in his love displayed for us in and through the perfect work of our Savior. One book on the Trinity that aims to do this very thing was written by Michael Reeves, a Bible teacher and a historian who provides theological oversight to UCCF, a student outreach ministry in the UK. His new book introduces the history of the theology of the Trinity, but it's also an invitation to delight in the Trinity, and that's its name, Delighting in the Trinity, released in the United States by IVP in 2012. I asked Michael Reeves about his book, Delighting in the Trinity, and to explain for us why he wrote it. I wrote the book out of a simple pastoral desire to have people know the living God better. Uh, I see particularly in um, amongst UK students, I see just a, 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 an enslavement to idolatry is really how I put it, meaning that there's such an impoverished understanding of God that people don't see the beauty of the triune God. And therefore, uh, the whole Christian life is shrunken and withered because they're thinking, well, okay, I've, I've got out of hell, but I'm not sure I want to be with this God. And particularly if you're thinking that Trinity is something awkward or difficult in God, then you've got something very, very... Um, schizophrenic in your faith. You're thinking, okay, I've got a God who produced a good gospel, but the God behind that gospel isn't actually himself good or beautiful or desirable. At various points throughout your book, as as you seem to be building clarity on the nature of our triune God, you draw comparisons with Islam. Ex- explain why you draw those those comparisons and those contrasts. Well, I want to draw those comparisons really, I think, um, not just so you can see the difference to Islam. I, I, I remember as a teenager, I was, I was interested in Islam for a while just because of the simplicity, the cleanness of its monotheism. And that's quite attractive and was attractive to me then. Um, and I now uh, see, no, that was horribly uh, reductive. And by snipping out Trinity, you're, you're not snipping out what's ugly or awkward, but what's beautiful. But it's not simply a contrast with Islam that I wanted to um, bring across. It's a con- contrast with single person gods, of whom Allah is the best known example. And the reason I wanted to make that contrast is, is I think that 
so many Christians are assuming that the living God is a single person God. But if he is a single person God, then he looks very much like Allah and will behave like Allah, um, which means that um, not being as he is, he won't um, he won't offer a gracious gospel. He won't offer us an intimacy because the very nature of God is different. Allah does not offer um, free grace. He doesn't offer intimacy because of his very nature. So I wanted to draw out that what you think about the nature of God is going to change your very understanding of the gospel from soup to nuts. Let's step back and look at the big picture of the intertrinitarian relationship that we see in Scripture. You work with college students, and you have a heart for college students. Imagine that a student approaches you who wants to understand all of this. How would you explain the biblical doctrine of the Trinity to them? Yeah, I think I always want to start with Jesus. I don't want to start with um, abstract illustrations, um, shamrock leaves, eggs, that kind of stuff. I want to start with Jesus and say, look, when you proclaim Jesus, you proclaim a triune God. He reveals a triune God to us. So, for example, a sort of verse I'd like to go to is uh, John 20, 31. Um, John says he writes his gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That means the one anointed by the spirit, the son of God. And so when you believe in Jesus the Son, then you believe in the revelation of a God who's proclaiming himself to be Father. Who is Jesus the Son of? He's Son of the Father. And that's the first thing I really want people to see in their understanding of God, that he's not like any other. The God revealed in Jesus is a Father. You think of John 14, 6 as well. Um, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so when you when you come to see Jesus, the son, you see the God that he reveals is a father, eternally a father, eternally, therefore, one who has a relationship, who loves his son. And that sort of thing, John says, uh, Jesus says in John 17, 24, father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. This isn't something that started at some point. For eternity, God has been a father loving his son. And he's loved him by pouring out his spirit on him. It's the spirit is the means of his blessing to him. The spirit personally works on the son to make the son uh, enjoy the love of the father for eternity. And so what I want students, for example, to see is I'm talking about the Trinity is very quickly to be able to see this isn't some abstract, strange math we're talking about. We're talking about a beautiful fellowship of love. So that even if they're not immediately understanding it, they're seeing this is something desirable. So it, it seems that this eternal relationship and this eternal love within, the, within God is really what distinguishes the triune God of Scripture from single-person gods. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there's a, a real tension within Islam. Um, I mentioned this in the book at one point where uh, one of Allah's 99 names, these 99 names are supposed to describe how he is in eternity. One of those 99 names is the loving. But that's really problematic. Now, of course, that's a lovely thing to say. But how can he be loving if there's no one there for him to love? And so because he's a single person, God, he cannot be essentially, eternally loving. 
And that's really why he's not going to offer a gospel of grace or offer close fellowship with himself. Uh, for the Muslim in paradise, you never get to see or be with, let alone be sons of Allah. In this book, you, you write in one place, quote, Absolutely singular, supreme beings do not like creation, end quote. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that if you have, um, if, if God is an absolutely singular being, a single person, and has been so for eternity, then that's how he likes things to be. It seems a very unnatural thing for such a God to cause anything else to exist. Why would he want to cause anything else to exist? For eternity, he's happy entirely by himself and has never known relationship, never known what it is to love another. And just uh, as you look at uh, other systems of thought that have an absolutely su singular supreme being, again and again, you see they veil the physical and the feminine as slightly embarrassing things. Creation is a slightly awkward thing with a single person God, as is femininity. If God is a single person who's never enjoyed loving another, there's no real rationale for loving relationship being a good thing. There's no, certainly no eternal rationale for that at all. Um, I, I think it, one good example of this would be in um, second century Gnosticism. One of the strains in Gnosticism, um, which Dan Brown, the Da Vinci Code, made out to be a kind of proto-feminist movement, which is a pack of lies. Um, in second century Gnosticism, you, you start with a monism that the single being is good, the spiritual realm only is good, and the existence of a second thing, the physical, the creation, is a bad thing. And the Gnostic hope is that the physical, the creation, will be slurped back up into the spiritual realm one day. Now, if you've got that view of reality, Imagine then reading Genesis 2, we have a man who's all by himself. Well, that's a good thing, right? That mirrors the spiritual reality, the ultimate spiritual reality being all by itself, which is good. The existence of a second thing beside it, woman, is considered a bad thing. Hence, you see, at the end of the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, um, Peter says, let Mary leave us for women are not worthy of eternal life. And Jesus corrects Peter slightly and says, no, women who make themselves male may enter the kingdom of heaven. And so with this idea that only one is good, therefore women were very devalued. But if you have a, a relational God, um, you, you have the father who is eternally the loving head of the son, then suddenly a marriage becomes deeply affirmed and a beautiful thing. Um, the father uh, and the son relationship being echoed out in a marriage relationship. I want to return to the, the creation theme for a moment. Go into this inter-Trinitarian relationship and explain for us where this act of creation or where this initial impulse to create originates. Yeah. Well, uh, our triangle, the Father, for eternity, 
uh, well, we looked at John 17, 24, where Jesus says, Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. For eternity, the Father has enjoyed, delighted in his servant. That's Isaiah language. He's enjoyed his son. And what's happening in creation is, as the Father is so delighted in the Son, so he delights to have that love overflow, that there might be many sons, that the Son might be the firstborn of many brothers. And so with this God, who's outgoingly gracious in who he is in eternity, eternally loving, it makes sense that he should have many others that he might love. Now, if you're a single person, God, that just wouldn't make sense. Why would he create? But because the Father's always enjoyed loving the son creation seems not a an essential thing he has to do at all but a very characteristic thing for him to do i'd like to ask you a more of a personal question because you you've seen so clearly this connection between uh, the triune nature of god and the beauty of creation and you see this in your own life now my question is, what happens in your mind and in your heart as you behold the beauty of creation? When you see the beauty of the mountains, the oceans, the sunsets, what goes on in your mind and in your heart? Explain that to us. Yeah. Oh, so many thoughts. So many thoughts. Um, one would be, flowing directly out of what we're seeing, is that in creation, I'm not simply seeing the omnipotent power of God. And that's something which, which is true, which I think that's the thing that Christians major on when they talk about Psalm 19, the heavens declaring the glory of God. That's true. We do see the power of God as how it, God must be super cosmically powerful to bring creation about, of course. But that hasn't explained why he's created. He doesn't create because of power. He creates because of this overflowing love. And so in creation, you see the generosity, the kindness of God that he creates in the first place out of love. And he continues to sustain us, even rebels, continues to sustain us because of his ongoing generosity and kindness. He places stars there to shine in the darkness. He places, I, I find this so encouraging every morning, the sun rising and driving away the darkness. That sort of Genesis 1 picture, uh, but also reminding me of Jesus, the light of the world, that I see the purity, beauty, glory of God proclaimed in the heavens as the sun, like a bridegroom, uh, shines and drives out all darkness. So that every day I find just as I see the sun rising, I am rejoicing to see God isn't... Uh, he isn't unkind, he isn't ungenerous, as I might naturally, as a, a natural idolater think. He's so good, so kind, so generous. So by creation itself, I'm one back to praise him, I'm one back to delight in him. At one point in the book, you say that we, what we love is more important than what we do. Essentially, in the Christian life, the affections are central. That emphasis is also reflected in your title, Delighting in the Trinity. And, cl and clearly, by writing this book, you don't just want to fill our minds with good theology about God, but you want to see hearts filled with affection for God. So explain the place of the affections uh, in our study of God. Yeah, the affections are so essential to who we are, so core in both sin and salvation. In sin, you see it. Um, why is it that Eve takes the apple? 
that the, the action of her sin actually flows out of her affections where her heart is that she desires wisdom. She wants to be like God more than she wants to trust God. So she's got a love for something else rather than a love for God. And that's how sin works in us. But the reason I act sinfully is because I've begun to desire sinfully. I've begun to desire something else more than I've desired God. And this is James 1. Um, is desire gives birth to sin and sin gives birth to death. But, but the same thing, this is how we're built. And so the same thing works for salvation. I naturally don't desire God. I desire myself. I desire other things. But what the Spirit so kindly does is the Spirit opens my eyes to see the glory and beauty of God and so wins my heart such that, and here's what I want to do in, in all my preaching, and I make this very clear when I speak, for example, to students and in my church, I want people to see that the living God is more beautiful and more desirable than their sin. And that's the Spirit's work through the Word. Um, the Spirit opens our eyes that we might see Christ. A key verse the Puritans always turn to in their understanding of sanctification was 2 Corinthians 3.18. Richard Sibbs made that verse, uh, in many ways, the, the centerpiece of his ministry. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 talks about how we are transformed from glory to glory as we gaze on him. This by looking at him, we become like him. We shine like the Lord because we become like what we worship. We see how glorious he is and he wins our hearts to him and we want him more than anything else. Delighting in God is, is such an important pursuit in the Christian life. We, we know and understand and delight in God as we discover more about him in Scripture so connecting these themes, what would you say to those of, a, those of us who find it to be a struggle in the morning when we approach Scripture? Uh, you know, we want to delight in God. We want to delight in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But that, that, that delight begins with a struggle, a struggle with the disciplines. Well, I think a key thing is to know, well, why are you opening your Bible in the morning? What are you trying to do? And people approach their Bibles with all sorts of different motivations, and I, I confess, I approach my Bible each morning with, with very confused motivations. And so we must know what we're doing as we're opening our Bible. Now, it is the truth of who Christ is. It is the light of who Christ is that will cause the heat of desire for him. But we must know that this is why the scripture's written. John Calvin put it beautifully when he's commenting on John 15. He said that the Lord has given us, the Spirit has breathed out these scriptures, that we might have a, a hearty affection, a cordial embrace of Christ. That's the point. And so as we open the scriptures, let's cry out, Lord, let me see your glory your beauty, your goodness, your kindness, your generosity, that I might love you afresh. Our triune God is, is eternal, and God existed in eternity past, and that changes how we view creation. But God also exists eternally triune into the future, and that changes everything about heaven. It seems to me the distinctive feature of, of what makes heaven heaven is the very presence of our triune God. You, you talk about this in the book. Fill this out for us, what eternity will look like. What's to come? 
Oh, what a lovely question. Uh, well, it is that the Spirit will eternally be working in us, and we will have spiritual bodies, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, um, by which he means the Spirit, who these will be, these will be uh, real physical bodies, but animated by the Spirit through and through now. And the Spirit's work is, well, he has two works in us. His first work is he unites us to the Son, such that as the Father has always cherished the Son and seen him as the apple of his eye, so we're embraced by the Father's love of the Son, and so that we can approach the Father as our Abba. So there's an extraordinary status gift the Spirit gives us, and so we can boldly go to the throne. But there's more. The Spirit doesn't simply give us the status of Christ. He gives us the mind of Christ. He, he turns our hearts so that as the Spirit opens my eyes, I begin to see who Christ is and enjoy the Son as the Father has eternally enjoyed the Son. And so I get to enjoy for eternity what has most pleased the Father for eternity. But also, I get to enjoy the Father as my Father, as the Son has always done. And so I'm brought into this wonderful Trinitarian life of joy and love. And we'll be in these physical bodies in a renewed creation. And I think this is where people uh, seem to flip-flop. There are some people who, who get twitchy about the idea that we'll actually have a real earth to enjoy because they see isn't that a distraction from God and there are some people who just talk about the joys of the new creation that the messianic banquet and all that and I want to say no the two work together really well rightly well they're designed to in that we talked about how creation proclaims the glory of the Lord, that through the new creation, we will appreciate the generosity of God more. It'll be a part of our ongoing eternal existence that as we live in the new creation, we will see the glory of God manifest so perfectly. His generosity shown to us so well that we will delight in him more and delight in each other too, now perfected. Uh, so there'll be this Trinitarian life will revel in the new creation. And that Trinitarian life has been expanded to include the whole family of the Father, which means we'll all be enjoying living together with him as brothers and sisters. That was Michael Reeves, a Bible teacher, a historian, and the man who provides theological oversight for UCCF, a student outreach ministry in the UK. He is the author of Delighting in the Trinity, released by IVP in the United States in 2012. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Authors on the Line podcast. This conversation was recorded on September 14, 2012. The free Authors on the Line podcast is supported, produced, and distributed by Desiring God in Minneapolis. You can subscribe and find a full archive of episodes by searching for Authors on the Line in the iTunes store or online through the web at desiringgod.org backslash blog. My name is Tony Aranke. Thanks for listening.